Hello, this is Harold Lapidus, and welcome to episode five of the Boston Herald podcast. Today, the main topic will be the brand new Bob Dylan box set, volume 15 of the bootleg series called Traveling Through 1967 to 1969, even though it goes up to 1970. It's not the first time they've done something like this, and it probably won't be the last. The box set features, among other people, Johnny Cash, Carl Scruggs, Carl Perkins, Charlie Daniels, and in a cameo role as the janitor, Chris Christopherson. After that, I'm going to revisit the 30-year-old album, Bob Dylan and the Dead, so don't touch that dial. As a companion to this podcast, I've just begun a new Facebook page, uh, surprisingly titled The Boston Herald Podcast, so you're all welcome to join as long as you play nice. And right now I have a slew of uh, videos related to the uh, traveling through box set. And I will be adding more things, including some cool uh, images. I hope you think they're cool anyway. So check it out. The traveling through box set uh, features music from two John Wesley Harding sessions, two Nashville Skyline sessions, which were quickly followed by two Johnny Cash sessions. Johnny Cash TV show appearance, a couple songs from self-portrait sessions, and uh, some stuff from the Earl Scruggs and Friends TV special. Since you're listening to this podcast, you've probably read about the box set elsewhere, and there's also the liner notes to read, so I won't go into too much detail. But the reason most Dylan fans like getting these box sets is get to listen to very familiar music with new ears. And we've been very spoiled lately. We had, we had the Rolling Thunder Review 14 CD box set. Blood on the Tracks was uh, six CDs. Trouble No More was eight CDs and a DVD. A Cutting Edge was 18 CDs. That kind of reminds me of uh, when The Clash put out London Calling, which was a double album, then Sandinista, which was a triple album. And then they put out Combat Rock, which was a single album, and it seemed to be incredibly short, even though it was the normal length for an album. And if anyone at Sony Legacy is listening to this, they probably know, but the Combat Rock album by The Clash was originally supposed to be a double album called Rat Patrol from Fort Bragg with uh, different mixes and, and many additional songs uh, that were, uh, some were put out as uh, B-sides. But if they could put out both versions of The uh, Clash's uh, Green album, uh, they might want to think about putting that out. Uh, of course, they, they get The Clash to go along, but hopefully they will because it's a pretty cool album. But now we have um, a uh, triple album traveling through. It's about two hours and 15 minutes. It's similar to the Beale's Abbey Road. So uh, the LP seems to be the standard and the CD is the uh, secondary consideration. But they could have included the quadraphonic mix of Nashville Skyline, another 28 minutes or so, or the version of I'll Be Your Baby Tonight that didn't fade out, which was accidentally included on the repackaged version of Biograph when it went from an LP size box to a CD size box. But they never asked me these things. But generally speaking, uh, less is more. It's a good idea. It's more in keeping with the era. Uh, if the albums were shorter and the songs were shorter, I guess the box sets should be shorter. Anyway, I'd like to share my personal Bob Dylan discovery journey and to place it in uh, context. 
1969, I must have gotten a transistor radio, and I listened to it all the time. I liked R&B and prog rock and hard rock and singer-songwriters and novelty records and jangly pop and whatever was there playing, and that included country music. There's hardly any difference when you're a kid and listening to the top 40. Uh, there were only two categories. Either they were cool records or they were uncool records. And among the country artists I liked were uh, Glenn Campbell, uh, B.J. Thomas, uh, Ray Stevens, if he can be included, and Johnny Cash. Not only did I buy uh, a couple singles, but I went out and got a Sun Records LP. I'm not sure exactly why I knew that was the thing to get first, but it certainly worked for me. But one artist I didn't get was Bob Dylan. I heard his single, Lay Lady Lay, and his voice reminded me that of a TV character named Gomer Pyle. He was a hapless Marine played by the actor and fellow Columbia recording artist, Jim Neighbors. He had some catchphrases that were popular at the time, like, golly, and surprise, surprise, surprise. The late 60s were all about authenticity, and Dylan, in my ignorance, did not pass that test. To me, he sounded like a phony. It took a Bob Dylan and the band concert in 1974 to open my ears and blow my mind, and there was nothing more real or urgent than that in that moment. It took a while to catch up on Dylan's back catalog, but eventually I bought Nashville Skyline, but still didn't really get it at first. Country music was the bastion of flag-waving, nixing-loving, pro-Vietnam rednecks, or so I thought. But to Dylan, it went back to the music he originally loved, the music of Hank Williams back to when country and western really was rebel music. It was outsider music. It took a while, but I would eventually get back to the country and discover all this great music I originally dismissed out of hand. But this was the late 60s, and it was the opposite of everything important going on at the time. But this was Dylan having fun after he was recovering from his motorcycle accident and recovering from his fame. But of course, Bob Dylan was not allowed to have any fun. <laughs> He was too important to people, even though he was escaping that responsibility, which he never wanted in the first place. But when I got it, uh, I loved it as much as any other era. And uh, a friend of mine and I used to have this phrase, it didn't really matter whether it was 1962, 1969, 1974, 1989, it didn't really matter. We would always just say, it's one of my favorite periods. <laughs> uh, yeah, after a while, it's just the whole journey. And uh Maybe if you didn't get it at the time, you'd get it later. And I'll discuss that when I get to the Dylan and the Dead report later on. The Traveling Through box set covers outtakes from 1967 to 1970, as I said. A handful were previously released. Uh, some were heavily bootlegged. And some were never heard outside of the inner circle. And those are the real treasures of the box set. So just to go over what's actually on the box set of uh, Traveling Through. Uh, CD1 has seven tracks originally recorded for John Wesley Harding in the fall of 1967 over two days. And then eight tracks from the Nashville Skyline sessions in February 1969, again over two days. CD2 covers the Johnny Cash sessions and it goes into uh, CD3. It took place a little while after the Nashville Skyline sessions. Carl Perkins was recording next door with an RBQ, so he showed up for some of the tracks. And 50 years ago, Rolling Stone announced that this might be an album. And uh, it's finally come true. If you see the 
little video documentary that is on my Facebook page and elsewhere. Uh, the producer, Bob Johnson, said that Columbia wouldn't release it because of the talking. And I guess they would have had to have edited that out. And so I guess that never came to be, but it took 50 years, but it's out now. Next up on CD3 is the May 1st recording from the Johnny Cash Show, uh, two songs by Bob Dylan and then the duet. Uh, May 2nd is when uh, Gomer Pyle uh, broadcast uh, its last episode. Uh, May 3rd, Dylan was back in the studio and he did a couple of Johnny Cash covers, among other things, and they're included here. And then uh, May 17th, 1970, was when the Earl Scruggs and Friends NET television special was filmed, I guess. The program also included The Birds and Joan Baez, and there were quite a few Dylan covers on the television special, as well as the accompanying album. The only real information I had about this program with Earl Scruggs was what I read in a book by Paul Cable called Bob Dylan, His Unreleased Recordings. It came out in the late 70s, but I probably got it in 1982 after reading Michael Gray's uh, Song and Dance Man, uh, Volume 2, Art of Bob Dylan. Paul Cable is not particularly a big fan of this era, and I'll have some excerpts again on my Facebook page so you can uh, see what he had to say. Anyway, getting back to the box set, there are, are not a lot of outtakes included in the box set, and apparently, according to various sources, the stuff that's still in the vault don't really shed any more light. And I guess if you really want to hear them, you can go to the Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa and try to get access to them. Seven of the 12 songs on John Wesley Harding are included in different forms. Since these recordings were never leaked, they acquired a sort of a mythic status, which would make sense because it's such a mythic album and it was mysterious enough as it was when it was released and it continues to be so all these years later. But these songs, these versions, sound like precious jewels that are not yet fully formed. They're fragile, they're gentle, they're sparkling, they're beautiful. Some tracks like All Along the Watchtower and John Wesley Harding, the title track, are just slightly more tentative, and the songs included here are mostly complete. Uh, only a couple of changes in the lyrics were updated in the studio, as far as I can tell. But uh, most of the rest of the tracks have a completely different feel to the release versions. Uh, not that they are necessarily uh, superior, but they're certainly interesting and enjoyable and complete in their own way. Drifter's Escape has kind of a shuffle beat. St. Augustine is slightly faster. As I Went Out One Morning is done as a waltz. Pity the Poor Immigrant sounds like something that might be on site two of uh, bringing it all back home and so on. So after 50 years or for however long you've been listening to the John Wesley Harding album, we can finally uh, get a glimpse into what was secretly going down in Nashville as he was about to drain the tie-dye from the psychedelic trends of the day. Dylan was prepared and focused as he entered the studio, the exact opposite of what was going on in the Blonde on Blonde sessions. Uh, drummer Kenny Buttry reportedly rested up for what he expected to be more marathon sessions, but was surprised to learn. They only had three two-hour sessions or something like that. And for the uh, Nashville Skyline sessions, the same holds true. It's not as uh, mythical an album, but again, we have certain tracks that are more alternative than others, let's say. 
to be alone with you is more swampy. Tell me that it isn't true. It's more rockin'. And the only true outtake from this disc is a song called Western Road, which is kind of a mashup of various blues lines repackaged as a new song. And while it's not an earth-shaking composition, it's certainly cool to hear. As I said, I read about the Johnny Cash sessions the first time in Paul Cable's book. It was a 10 LP bootleg set called Ten of Swords, and it had a booklet based on some of uh, Cable's opinions, and if, if they uh, disagreed, they rewrote them in a kind of nasty way, which was sort of humorous. But once I heard the Johnny Cash bootleg, I love those sessions. The back and forth between the two legends at Career Crossroads was a fascinating insight into how these two interacted. There's a lot of humor and levity, and you can even hear laughter in the studio at certain points. The traveling through albums expand on what we've already heard, as you'll hear soon enough if you haven't already. On the second Dylan Cash session, Johnny asks Bob if he knows any religious songs. I wish that could have happened back in 1963, and Dylan could have played uh, Talkin' Havana Gila Blues. Bob doesn't seem to be too familiar with the choices John had. The three songs from the Johnny Cash show follow. It was his first TV appearance since the Les Crane show on February 17th, 1965, if I remember correctly. And apparently, Living the Blues was a planned single at the time. Two days later, Dylan was back in the studio and covered a couple of Johnny Cash songs at the session, Ring of Fire and Falls in Prison Blues, and they're included here. Back in the basement tapes, Days with the Hawks. He also did a couple of Johnny Cash songs. Again, what sounded like sacrilege at the time now sounds like Dylan having fun. And as we all know now, Dylan was not allowed to have any fun in those days. <laughs> no wonder he uh, dropped out of sight. Speaking of authenticity, it's difficult to believe I'm bringing it up in a discussion of Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash. But this would be a good time to discuss this aspect in the context of 1969. As I said, clearly these sessions were meant to be enjoyable. However, since Dylan in particular was supposed to be a serious artist and so-called voice of a generation, when you hear Johnny Cash singing, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die, you totally believe him. When Dylan does it, he's just singing the song without getting inside of it. I don't have a problem with that, but if you want to interpret Dylan in only one way, you probably do. But that's your problem, not his. And going back to the February duets, some things have always puzzled me. Uh, there are some songs sung in the same key all the way through, while others change keys with every verse to accommodate their individual singing registers. I'm fascinated with the ease with which those uh, Nashville cats could effortlessly go back and forth like that, but just wondering why didn't they just uh, stick in that same key that they both could sing in easily. But just as logically, on One Too Many Mornings, Dylan and Cash are exchanging lines. Like if one singer sings, you are right from your side, and the other one sings, and I am right from mine, following the logic, one person is completely right, and therefore one, one person is completely wrong. It reminds me of the kink song called Hatred, where the Davies brothers are singing at each other, and one of them sings, you hate me, and the other one sings, I hate you. <laughs> so the hate is always on the same person. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash are just thinking of something to sing on the spot. So I guess we should all lighten up and just enjoy it. The Traveling Through box set ends with recordings from the Earl Scruggs and Friends NET special. That's NET for National Educational Television, not Never Ending Tour. East Virginia Blues opens the show 
while Nashville Skyline Rag appeared on the album. If you go on my Facebook page, you'll see uh, two different back covers. One was the commercial version, released only in the USA, and then there was the advanced promotional copy, which was similar to the ones released around the rest of the world. A geek alert, as if that wasn't geeky enough for you. I noticed on uh, Nashville Skyline Rag, I guess it's contractually credited to Earl Scruggs and Bob Dylan on that track only, since it was previously released. But the other tracks are all credited to Bob Dylan with Earl Scruggs, even the Earl Scruggs interview, which took place without Bob Dylan. There are other tracks uh, previously unheard to people like me, <laughs> To Be Alone With You and Honey Just Allow Me One More Chance, come across as the laid back country jams they are. This is Dylan having fun and it's a joy to listen to and don't project your own needs on top of it. And again, it's interesting to note that Honey Just Allow Me One More Chance in legalese. Originally, the track was credited to H. Thomas or Henry Thomas and Bob Dylan, and now it's credited as uh, traditional. So how about that? In the early part of his career, Dylan would often thrive on the chaos of spontaneity and the results speak for themselves. The entire electric period, Rolling Thunder Review, the concert for Bangladesh, and these Nashville sessions. But after a while, this wasn't always a successful gamble. Uh, Live Aid and the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award uh, immediately come to mind. Not that they weren't great artistic statements, but the optics weren't <laughs> that good. But um, they were bold artistic statements which baffled much, much of the audience. Which brings me to an album released 30 years ago. Dylan and the Dead, Live Chronicle of a short 1987 tour of Bob Dylan with the Grateful Dead, was almost universally panned at the time, and ever since, really. When I got my copy, I probably only listened to it a couple of times. Apparently, Grateful Dead guitarist Jerry Garcia compiled his own version featuring nine tracks, with seven not previously available on any live Dylan album at the time. And it's not clear why Dylan rejected it, maybe didn't want anyone else to define him. I recently taught a class about Dylan and the Dead at a continuing education class near where I live. Dylan author Clinton Halen once wrote that the six-state stadium tour was one of Dylan's worst ever career decisions, and many others agree. I, along with a vocal minority, believe this collaboration was one of the best things Dylan ever did. It got him back on track after losing his way in the mid-1980s. I'm not going to go into too much detail here about how Dylan's career changed after this collaboration, but after listening to more than 12 hours of unreleased live and rehearsal tapes, as well as a recreation of Garcia's purported version he gave to Dylan, I decided in order to prepare for the class, it was my duty to revisit the album. And guess what? I found out that I really liked it. I'm going to quickly run through the seven tracks included on the official album and give my thoughts on why Dylan may have chosen these particular songs and performances. Again, these are just my thoughts. You know, I don't talk to Bob Dylan, <laughs> never answers my phone calls. So I'm going to uh, just do it as an observer, trying to understand why he chose these songs and maybe it'll uh, give you a different view of the album as well. Track one is Slow Train. 
from Sullivan Stadium in Foxborough, Massachusetts on the 4th of July, 1987. I attended this, the first Dylan and the Dead show. As far as I could observe from my seat, the crowd did not react much to Dylan until he got to this number, the 10th in the set. My guess is that while not particularly well known, it was the first song the Deadheads could dance to. From the stage, this must have been quite a sight for Dylan, and because of that, here it appears as the opening track, and it's also the first time the song Slow Train appeared on a Dylan live album. Second song was I Want You, recorded in Oakland, California on the 24th of July, and this was the fifth of the sixth Dylan and the Dead shows. When this was performed in Foxborough, it kind of disintegrated at the end, and Dylan may have wanted this to be included as a superior and definitive version. Of course, a slower live version had already been included on the album at Budokan. Track three, Gotta Serve Somebody, from the 26th of July in Anaheim, California, the final show. This is another live album debut. Here, Dylan updates and probably improvises the lyrics. Once it gets going, it's a completely different song, which may be why he chose to include it. Among the rhymes in this version are Hang out to dry with tear in your eye. Don't leave me behind, give it to the blind. May have eyesight too. And he rhymes it with a Johnny Cockroo, who appears in a couple of Muddy Water songs. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, I didn't notice that either. <laughs> he rhymes truck without a luck, sleeping in the alley and sleeping in the dust with the back of the bus. Uh, track four, Queen Jane approximately, Eugene, Oregon, or Oregon on July 19th, 1987, which was the fourth of the six shows. The first time Dylan ever performed the song was in Foxborough, but I guess uh, he preferred this version, and uh, the fact that it's a live debut at all is probably one of the reasons he decided to include it. All right, so here we have track five, or track one on side two, depending on your configuration. The song Joey. This was also performed on the 4th of July in Foxborough, Massachusetts. And again, this was the first ever live performance of this song. It was performed at the first three shows. Uh, the second version in Philly was a disaster. I think uh, Joey gets killed in the third verse in that one. But here, Dylan gets it right. I remember when uh, a friend who went with us to the show said he hoped Dylan would do this song because he was a Johnny Thunders fan and Johnny Thunders covered it. And I said, being the Dylan guy, absolutely no way. <laughs> There's no way on God's green earth Bob Dylan's going to do the song Joey. Uh, he never has in uh, the more than a decade since it's been out. And it was also uh, not well received among a lot of people. It was a tribute to a gangster and it was taken to task famously by Lester Bangs in Cream Magazine. The 2020 hindsight, we can see it as a uh, song in the tradition of uh, Jesse James, where people who may not have been so wonderful are portrayed heroically in a folk song. Anyway, uh, for those keeping score, Jerry Garcia included both of these Foxborough tracks in his version of what he thought Dylan and the Dead should be. 
The next track is All Along the Watchtower from the last show, July 26th in Anaheim, California. Interestingly, uh, Jerry Garcia didn't include any version of this song on his compilation, possibly out of respect uh, for Jimi Hendrix's legendary cover, but this version rocks and it had already been on two Dylan Live albums, but here it is again. And uh, it's the most played song ever in concert by Bob Dylan. So why not include it on this album? And the very last song is Knocking on Heaven's Door, uh, the last show again in Anaheim, California. Uh, an appropriate closing song. Uh, there, um, Again, this is a song that was on two live albums, but it's a rewritten version here. So uh, you may want to check that out again. So there you have it. That's a, a new look at an old album, Dylan and the Dead. You may want to give it another spin if you're not busy listening to any of the past five or six Bootleg uh, series and other uh, compilations that have uh, come out recently. Um, anyway, this is Harold Lapidus with the Boston Harold Podcast. And if you made it this end, I have a little bit of a surprise. I've just started since I've been recording this during my breaks, a page devoted to the podcast. It's on Blogger and it's, uh, at least for now, it's called the Boston Harold Podcast. You'll see links to it in various places. Uh, uh, you should be able to find it. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.